Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Next, next scripture will be Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And the last scripture will be Psalm 145, 1 through 7. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Psalm 145, one through seven. These are the words of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Um, you can probably tell from the the angle of those verses, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 127, 3, and Psalm 145, especially verse 4, that today's lesson is going to have something to do with, with family, with rearing children, with parenting, uh, with the home, that sort of thing. Um, if you look at the full statement of our 2020 church theme, it is worship, colon, loving the God who first loved us. We continue to riff off of a passage in First John 4, because there's it really kind of encapsulates so much of the gospel. And it all begins with loving God back. He initiates. He's the main character of the Bible. But he chose. Uh, you know, if you're God, you have unlimited options. He chose to make creatures precisely to love them, to extend the love that was in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, out into all creation. So it, what we're doing when we worship God, you know, it, it's not just what we do here in a corporate setting, but it's the idea of basically of, of loving God who, who initiated by loving us. And so over the past few weeks, we've been discussing how worship, which really is kind of the whole ball of wax, and, and whether we're, we're, our worship is directed to God or to something or someone else, worship lies at the heart of all we do, everything that we do. Every decision you make ultimately has to do with what you are most devoted to, what you most find uh, meaning in, what you most revere, what, you are, what your heart is most captivated by. If you really back it up, that's why you do everything you do. It's the reason we prioritize what we prioritize, worship. Worship determines who we are all becoming, our identity, uh, which direction we're moving, and so for this reason, we've tried to connect all aspects of our lives to worship. Everything from the way we view the natural world to the way we view one another, from how we regard a, a corporate church service to how we see our, our work, our vocation, which was the last few weeks. And so today we turn our focus to the home, to our families. And we're going to ask what family has to do with worshiping God. What does your home and family have to do with worshiping God? Turns out the answer is quite a lot. 
as we consider this relationship between family and worship, I want to suggest a kind of guiding metaphor for this lesson. I want you to think with me today of, of your family, of your home, as a kind of garden, a garden where worship of God is the, the fruit or the, the crop that is cultivated. Your family as a garden where the worship of God is cultivated. And so if raising a crop of God worshipers, little kids who grow up to be above all else, people who are devoted to Yahweh, if that's the goal, then what does it take? This is our question for today's lesson. What does it take for a successful harvest of God worshipers? Well, the first thing is actually quite obvious. Home and family needs to be a place, if I can use the word place, though I don't mean your house, I mean your home, right? I know there are home builders, we've got two or three in this church, but you're really building houses, right? The home is the family. I mean, that's what the words used to mean. I don't know. If, um, uh, that's what we're going for. So, so whether you're out driving around or in your house, whatever, that the relationships that compose family and home need to be a place or an environment of worship. That's my first point. In other words, this is where worship actually should be occurring. It's not the only place. I hope the whole year's worth of lessons has made that clear. There's no, really no limits to where or when we worship. It's 24-7. Living sacrifice, uh, being that, is worship. And yet, of all places, home and family dynamics should be, should be uh, flavored and shaped by an atmosphere of worship. Psalm 127.3 implies that the parent-child relationship actually involves more than just two parties. I think when a lot of parents are raising children, they just think, well, it's me and the kid. It's, you know, I got to figure out how to do this. It's really three parties, right? It's the parent, the child, and God who entrusted the parent with the child in the first place. Children are not beings to do with what we see fit. They're not our um, as one writer put it, indentured servants. They're not just your workforce. Um, they're not props for, for building up your own identity. Uh, a second chance at being what you wished you could have been but, but weren't. They're not just, you know, uh, implements to reflect good or poorly, you know, poor, uh, good or poorly on you. Um, children are a heritage from the Lord, Psalm 127.3 says. A heritage from the Lord. We don't own our children. We are merely stewards of the creatures entrusted to us by God. And I want you to notice further that he calls children in Psalm 127.3, fruit of the womb. Fruit. I may be making too much of this, but doesn't fruit suggest horticulture, husbandry, careful cultivation and nurture, there's this long process that's involved in shaping children. I mean, how long does it take for a puppy to become an adult? Isn't it like a year or two? It takes us 18, 20, nowadays 30. <laughs> um, my mom's probably thinking, or maybe 60, because you're, you're still a work in progress. Um, but, you know, there's a reason for that. We're, we're to cultivate children and shape them. They are, they're more like fruit than something stamped off an assembly line instantly. They are, are, are nurtured and shaped and grown over time. So we're to cultivate human beings who properly regard the God who placed them under our care. That's the goal. 
cultivate human beings who, who regard God with the centrality in their lives that he deserves. And we're to shape that into them. And that's the very context for the famous greatest command that appears in Deuteronomy 6.4. He says we're to love the Lord, 6.4 and 5, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus will later say on multiple occasions that that is basically the essence of, um, of all the scriptures up to that point in time. And yet the context for that command is home and family, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is all about parents who are pictured developing in their children this all-consuming love for Yahweh. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And he goes on to elaborate what that would look like. What is worship, after all, if not loving something in an ultimate sense? Adoring something in an ultimate sense. I devote myself ultimately to this thing. Everything else will be sacrificed for it, not the other way around. Worship and love are inextricably connected. So to teach our children to love God with their heart, soul, and might is to teach them to worship with our whole being fully devoting our complete self to him. And in the home and family environment, we're to model that. We're to develop this kind of worship. And that obviously can include regular family devotion, you know, worship times, devotion times, whatever you want to call them. The family gathers for a few minutes every night or every morning. They read Bible stories together. They relate these scriptural ideas to the day's events, whether it's a trauma in kindergarten or a high school breakup or learning how to use money or you know what goes on on the sports field or whatever it's real it's relevant the scriptures matter they're our touchstone they're our narrative they're our script and so we relate those in real intimate ways honest ways in those devotion times i hope we're all doing that we, we lift up, we, you know, we share the goodness of, of God that we experienced that day. Look what God did today. And we are honest, like the Lament Psalms, about the hardships. Where is God? I didn't feel him today. He didn't seem to come to you know, bring himself to bear on this problem. Let's pray to him now and ask him to do what he does. In short, let's worship him. And what about the less structured, more pervasive God-centeredness? that should just sort of flavor the daily dynamics of a family that loves the Lord. I mean, he goes on in Deuteronomy 6 to talk about this. You shall teach the words of the Lord diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you get that? This is like redundancy, right? Just inundation. God isn't in a building we go to every now and then. He's in our lives. He's real. Life is real. We bring everything to him. And we're honest about it. And, and family should be a place where we, where we talk about our, our awe for God. After all, worship is about awe. What is awe-inspiring to your heart? What captivates you? What is your heart smitten by? What's the most beautiful, wonderful, amazing, powerful, terrifying thing in the world that demands your ultimate respect, that captures your awe? Hebrews 12, 28. 
um, says that we come before God with awe. Out of gratitude for his kingdom, which cannot be shaken, we approach him with reverence and awe. Worship him, it actually says in the ESV, with awe. Awe and worship are pretty much two sides of the same coin. And this ought to be the culture that characterizes our families, a culture of awe for God. God gives us plenty of reasons to be in awe of him. His wonders abound in the woods near our houses, the sky above us, the songs of birds, what we eat at the kitchen table, and any number of other ways. And so let's not be reticent to speak of God's awe and glory. We need a family culture where God is the center, where he is the reference point for everything. Secondly, and it really implied already in the first point, but I want to draw it out even further, is that a successful harvest of God worshipers, rearing children to be people who worship God above all else, requires parents who have a proper awe for God themselves. You know, the New Testament echoes Deuteronomy 6, when the Apostle Paul tells fathers to quote, this is Ephesians 6, 4, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Lord is the reference point. The instruction of the Lord, the, the thus saith the Lord, the word that has come from his spirit is the standard. We're to rear them according to that standard, according to that rule or measure. And we've, we've been given that responsibility as parents. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline involves not only teaching the standard of godliness, but deploying incentives and correctives in a wise way with great forethought and care to train the godliness into our kids, right? And of course, applying discipline to children takes discipline on the part of parents. Anybody who's parented for more than about five minutes knows that the number one discipline you need is self-discipline. You will not discipline anyone without your own dis self being disciplined because <laughs> it's work. You're gonna doubt it a lot. Uh, you're gonna wonder if it works. It takes consistency. It takes patience. It takes the long view, not the short-term view. It takes self-sacrifice. takes not doing the easy thing, but over and over and over again, doing the right thing. And since for believers, God's word defines what the right thing is, we're brought back to the question of whether we have reverence or awe for the Lord and for the Lord's words. Remember how many times Jesus either alludes to Scripture, quotes Scripture, or just says it is written? When there's a tough question or a challenge, I think of the temptation of Jesus, and three times, what does he say? And many other times, it is written. It's his mic drop. <laughs> like, this is settled. God spoke on this. He doesn't have to say anything. It's, it's written already. Do we have that sort of reverence for God? Because if we don't have a reverence for, or for his word, if we don't have a reverence for his word, we could wonder, I think, accurately, rightfully, whether we have a reverence for him. If I'm saying something all the time and you just, you know, blow it off, then you don't really care what I'm saying, you know. Um, and I'm a human being, right? Uh, if, if a husband never listens to his wife or vice versa, you probably don't care about the person that much. Words are one of the, 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 the biggest expressions, the clearest expressions of our humanity, right? I mean, it was the eternal word, the logos, that became flesh, after all. 
So the word of the Lord is pretty much the way we know the Lord. And do we reverence that? Because if not, we don't reverence or have awe for him. Note that in Deuteronomy 6, before parents can ever contagiously share their awe for the Lord and his word with their children, it must first have captivated their own heart. Deuteronomy 6, 6 says this, these words that I command you today shall be on your own heart. He says that before he says, now teach them diligently as you walk this way and lay down and rise up and sit around the kitchen table or what have you. They've got to be on your heart first. So we need awe for God ourselves if we're going to contagiously share that awe, it's a good disease awe for God, a contagion that, that blesses us and blesses the world, but we gotta have it before we can give it. Now, let me, let me uh, express a, 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 a very serious irony here. Ironically, we sometimes fail our kids. All of us fail our kids, by the way. So this isn't a lesson, by the way, I should have said this at the beginning. This is not a lesson to give anybody fodder for judgment. Um, if everything's going wonderfully with your kids right now, just wait. Just wait. Um, a lot of times we look around, we see other people's kids, and we think, man, what did they do? You don't know what they did because you don't know how their kids are doing. There's that. And if things are going really badly right now and you're super worried, it's not over till it's over. And God is up there hearing your prayers. All right? There's a thousand reasons we shouldn't judge each other. We should help each other. We're all in this together, right? Everybody here loves everybody else's kids here. Amen? So this is not about making anybody feel guilty. This is just reminding us of who we are and how the worship of God should permeate the culture of our homes, beginning with the parents. So here's the irony I want to speak of. Sometimes we fail our kids because we are more in awe of them than of God. We actually fail them because we have too much awe for them. And not enough awe for God. We're more afraid of upsetting our kids than upsetting God. Put another way, we so crave their affection, their approval, that we recoil from applying the very instruction and discipline that they so desperately need. And we can end up abdicating our God-given responsibility because of misplaced awe. That's where every problem starts misdirected all two into money two into things two into our careers two into nature two into you know uh, romantic connection two into a thousand friends i oh, i can't go against my friends well what if your friends are going the wrong direction <laughs> the best thing you'll do for your spouse ever is to love god more than your spouse that's the number one thing you can do to be a good spouse love god more than your spouse the best thing you can do for your kids is to love the God who gave them to you more than them. I know that sounds counterintuitive. But we've got to remember that we are to steward our children for God, not turn them into idols who replace God. They're not ours. We don't own them. They're God's. We're stewards of them on his behalf. But not only is personal awe for God a crucial trait for parents in the home, it's also arguably the single most important thing that parents should be instilling into their children. So here's the third criterion for parents who would reap a harvest of God worshipers. And it's this, to remember that the essence of your role as a parent is to foster awe 
not to enforce law. Your number one job is to foster awe, not enforce law. What do I mean by that? Well, for many parents, I think the basic model or paradigm that, that's in their head, you know, from which they are parenting, the kind of view of the whole thing that they're involved in that, that really informs their actions and their priorities and all of that with regard to their kids, it, it is a, a paradigm that involves basically law, or if you like better, rules, and the child's behavior. That's how we think of it often, right? Well, I've got to get them to behave right, and there are certain rules and standards and laws. And I want to say, to be sure, worshipful parenting certainly includes implementing God's laws. They're good for us. That's the whole point of the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, is how God's laws are wonderful. They're beautiful. They're glorious. They're, they're life-giving. So I'm not speaking against that. It's, it's not that parenting doesn't involve God's laws and enforcing those and effecting good behavior according to those laws in our children. It's that good parenting is not limited to that, and it's not even essentially that. That's a means to something else, and that something else is an awe, an all-consuming heart captivation of our kids by God Almighty. God does want us to shape kids' behavior. There's no question about that. He, he wants us to inculcate respect for God's limits and God's boundaries. They're good for us. Remember that Eli the priest, who appears to be a decent man in the, in the boy Samuel's formation in the temple, we later find the same man refusing to, quote, restrain his own sons, who are also priests. They become self-indulgent and ultimately debauched, and because he doesn't have the wherewithal to restrain them. I don't know why. Maybe he thought too much of them. Maybe he was afraid of the ramifications. Maybe he was more in awe of what they might do to him than what God might do to him. I don't know. He didn't restrain them, and the results were tragic not only for the sons, but for Eli, indeed for all Israel. So yes, enforcing God's laws, enforcing uh, or trying to effect behavior that conforms to God's rules is crucial. But think about this. However effective you and I are at controlling our kids' behavior, if that's really what parenting is, control their behavior, get them to act right, if that's the goal, however effective we are at that, while they're under our roof, something more deep and much more transformative is going to be needed to make them true worshipers of God when they leave our homes, right? When they're out from under our roof and they're out on their own, away from our rules, away from our consequences, then what? There are going to be a lot of different contexts for most of their life besides our home. You gotta have something else besides that. And that something else is deep worshipful awe of God's power, his faithfulness, his beauty, his glory, his provision, his grace and mercy. What our children need is what all humans need in order to worship whatever it is we worship, and that is a transforming sense of awe. You will do whatever comports with what is captivating your heart at the end of the day. 
Rules and laws can only get you so far. What captures your heart? What makes you stand in awe? Paul Tripp, Paul David Tripp wrote a little book called Awe, and I'm really getting a lot of this third point from that. It's very convincing to me. I think Laura and Sean actually went to hear him speak. He, he's written a lot on parenting and other topics, but this little book is just on how central awe is to the life of a God, a, a Christ follower, a, a believer in God. And in his little book, um, he shows that when we human beings flout God's instruction, when we disobey his, his rules, his laws, we don't at bottom have a law problem. We have an awe problem. That's the fundamental problem. That's the fundamental failing. Because we're all warped. We've been warped by the seductive lies that first appeared in the Garden of Eden. One of them is the lie of autonomy. I, I, I'm in charge. I have the right to, you know, sort of narrate my own story and chart my own course through life. I have autonomy, self-rule. The other lie is the closely related lie of self-sufficiency. So not only do I have the right to live my life the way I choose, I have all the wisdom inside myself I would ever need to get me there. I don't need to be told anything from outside. There's just this intuitive compass inside me, self-sufficiently guiding myself autonomous, uh, my autonomous self to the path that I chart. Those are the two things that took Eve down, and then Adam, and then humanity, by the way, pretty much. Guess what? Those two lies start working on your kids out of the gate. I mean, how old do you have to be before you're a kid basically throwing a fit, a tantrum over this conviction that you, before you can even speak, you have this sense, I should be in charge. What are the terrible twos if they're not autonomy in embryonic form? You know, here, here's a snapshot of where we're all headed. I, I'm not going to pick up my toys. You're not going to tell me what to do, even if it hurts me, right? And so one of our jobs is to take that off for self that our kids begin to develop, that all of us struggle with. It's the essence of sin. All for self that is replaced all for God. And we're to flip that. We're to redirect them to the all that is rightfully God's. Rather than being captivated by all for him, all for self will capture their hearts. That's the natural default path of humans. That's what the Bible teaches us. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. We don't get his glory. We don't comprehend it. And that begins very early, that process in a kid's development. And a parent's job is to liberate them from that and to foster instead an awe for God. Let me share with you a couple of quotes from this uh, book by uh, Paul David Tripp in a chapter on the home. And, I, and, and we will, uh, the lesson will be yours. First of all, he says this, children will only live as God has ordained them to live if their hearts have been freed from the bondage to awe of self and have been captured by the awe of God. So, parents, it simply doesn't work to have a law system as your model for parenting. Do your children need the law? Yes, they do. God employs the law to help your children see how spiritually needy they are. The law tells your children how God wants them to live, but the law can never, ever deliver them from the sin and self-worship worship that have captured their hearts. If awe doesn't rule my child's heart, 
God's law won't control my child's behavior. The great battle of parenting is not the battle of behavior, not ultimately. It's the battle for what kind of awe will rule our children's hearts. This means that our parenting must be guided by a great big awe agenda. We need to do everything we can to put the glory of God and his grace before our children so that the awe of God would rule their hearts. We have to counter, that's close quote, we have to counter the sinful tendency that they're going to have to not see God in everything around them. How do we do that? One more quote from Paul David Tripp. He's answering this question, how do we do that? How do we become people who sort of contagiously spread this awe for God and open our children's eyes to see the God, the creator who's behind all the glories of creation that so capture our heart and take us only halfway there, right? Here's what his answer is. He says, well, God in his condescending love and mercy has helped us out here because he has created his world in such a way that it would reveal him. The fact that the physical world points to God is no accident. It was his divine intention as he was forming the physical universe with his awesome power. So God has made his power, faithfulness, wisdom, goodness, love, and mercy visible to us every day through the lens of the world he created. Every glorious created thing points to a God of far greater glory. So parents, it's not unnatural to talk about God every day to your children. It's positively unnatural not to. God made hot and God made cold. God made water that freezes on one end and boils on the other. Wow. Wow is him, not me. I agree with him. Pretty, pretty weird. God made the delicacy of the lily, the inexhaustible wings of a hummingbird, the lumbering gait of an elephant, the multicolored stripes of a rainbow, the terror of a storm, the processes of the earth to supply us food to eat, the splash of stars at night. You just can't get up in the morning without bumping into God. As a parent, you are called to commit yourself to being a tool of this awe-recapturing agenda. Well said, in my opinion. Anybody who wants to can borrow that book. I've about beat the, the, the snot out of it, excuse me, th this past year. It's a little book, too. You can read it in no time. All right, I want to close with Psalm 145, because all of this is, is, is so backed up by our scriptures, by the word of God. Hear the psalmist. <clears throat> this is a psalm that is just extolling, like so many of them do, the glories of God, evident in his creation, his mighty works, his mercy, his grace, his deliverance of his people when they're in need. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And then here's verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another, and they shall declare your mighty acts. Let me suggest to you that that's ultimately, there's a lot of things parenting is, but what is it sort of common denominator? What's the core? What's the gist? Isn't it that? one generation commending God to the next generation and saying these works and acts and wonders and glories you see all around you, there's a God behind that. Anybody can go to a national park and say, wow, this is glorious. What do you mean by glorious? 
We, we've not taught our kids if we don't go the next step and say it's glorious because the God behind it is glory, is glorious, right? And so that's largely what we're involved in. And in each of those points, making your home a place where, where we actually do worship, um, having an awe in ourselves, and then seeing our parenting is essentially conveying that awe contagiously to our children, awe for God. Uh, is a way that we can make our families very much connected to the worship of our God. Thank you for your attention.